What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another Young Musician's Guide podcast. I am your host, Aaron Campbell, and today we have a conversation with the very awesome Dr. Joanna Ross Hershey. Now, to try and dig into all of the things she does would take forever. Just to kind of sum it up, uh, she teaches tuba and euphonium at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. She also plays in the Jam Joanna and Michael tuba duet that just came out with a new CD, which will be linked in the description down below. On top of that, she's held multiple careers that we'll talk about later in the episode. Um, she's kind of done it all in the world of tuba and euphonium, and she's super involved also in the International Women's Brass Conference, which the link for that event, which is coming up, will also be linked in the description down below. And we get into what she has done and what she is doing and how she goes about it and tips that she has for younger people kind of getting started. Now, um, she, there's so much wealth in what she does that being able to try, try to sum it up is just going to be impossible. So I'm not even going to go about it. Um, just listen to the episode and you'll get it all. But before we dig into the episode, just a little bit of self-promotional awesome. Um, I am working on my own debut solo CD, and right now we are almost on the last week of the GoFundMe campaign. I'll list it in the description and everything down below where you can go and essentially pre-order the CD. Now, the GoFundMe is set up as a crowdfunding site, and it's donation-based, but I have also set up beside the donation itself that if you donate at certain levels, you get certain extra things. Most of them are involving pre-ordering the CD, getting it two weeks before anybody else, um, but there's a bunch of extra incentives as well, so I'll have you go and check those out for yourself. Now, once the GoFundMe goes away and I stop doing the crowdfunding, um, all of these incentives go away, and it's purely just a pre-order or an order at that point. So if you want any of these extra goodies, go check out the GoFundMe um, before that goes away. And so in terms of helping this podcast grow, you guys kind of already know the drill. You can like it, you can rate it, you can comment on everything um, to help it jump in the algorithms, to help it get into the ears of more people. And to really help it get into the ears of more people, you could literally just share it with your friends. You can always share it on your social media platforms, or you can literally just take your buddy's phone away from them and download it for them. Uh, a lot of people tell me that they don't listen to podcasts or they don't even know how to listen to podcasts. It's literally an app on the iPhone that you can't get rid of. You cannot delete the podcast app. So go ahead and check it out. And of course, if you want to help monetarily just for this podcast specifically, you can head over to the Patreon. That is linked in the description down below. That is a monetary way for you to help produce this podcast and help me take care of some of the overhead. Also, I do want to warn you, uh, we had a little bit of a technical difficulty. Um, well, we, I had a technical difficulty. Uh, my mic and Skype sometimes don't like to agree. Sometimes they agree perfectly, but other times not so much. And this was one of the not so much times. And instead of editing it and to where a point where it didn't seem real, I was able to reduce some of the noise. But just so you know, about 20 minutes in, um, my voice starts to get a little electronic-y static behind it. I don't know what it is. I don't know what causes it. If you do, please message me and tell me how I can fix it. Um, it happens from time to time. It tends to happen if I'm on Skype for too long. It hasn't happened too much before. It's just kind of a new thing that's popped up. But anyway, I didn't notice it until post. So it's in there. I apologize, but it's it's not unbearable. And good thing is she talks way more than I do. So you don't have to hear it too much. It wasn't a mess up on her end. It was all my dumb self. So uh, just a fair warning for that. But that's enough of the business side of things. Let's go ahead and jump right into the conversation I got to have with Dr. Joanna Ross Hershey.
Where is Pembroke? Alright, Pembroke in North Carolina is at the bottom of the state near the South Carolina border, near where Route 95 goes up and down. So if you were going to drive from Boston to Florida, you would go right by Lumberton, North Carolina. And Pembroke is just a short hop and a skip from there. It's about two hours from the coast. Yeah, I was about to say, you're pretty coastal then. Yeah, and it's a good place because I can get up into D.C. and Baltimore and I can get down to the Atlanta area and Florida. So it's a nice location for traveling to. Oh, yeah. Are you going to are you going to be a Surtec? I am not because I'm going to be in Indiana for the music festival, um, the BOA festival that Yamaha runs. And so I'll be in Indiana instead of Surtec. Gotcha. Which is a shame, but. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, So you. I mean, you've done essentially it all in one way or another all the things that low brass people get excited to be about i mean you've got i mean you have military experience you've got the dma i mean you studied with mr p that's always something everybody (laughs) wants to do um and now you're in orchestras you're you're touring with uh, with your with your duet you've got also you've got the brass band you've got the conference you've got so many things going on was it how did so how do you let's, let's just let's start with a question about your career and you living in your career. How have you been able to manage doing all of these things? And I mean, you're a representative for Yamaha Instruments as well. And plus, I'm sure I mean, Michael Parker, you have a mouthpiece through them. So you have do. to do some things for that. So you've got a lot going on. You've got a lot of irons in the fire. You're at two universities. Like right. what? What you're crazy. <laughs> Why do all yes. these things? And you're not only you're not only involved with the International Women's Brass Conference, you're president of the whole right. organization. So why? What? <laughs> well, one of the things I think we all figure out is you have to decide, are we going to do as much as possible or not? And either one is fine, but for me, I've decided that I want to be all in. And I haven't gotten too exhausted yet, and that sometimes changes as we age. But my decision has been to take everything that sounds interesting and that I like doing and that I want to do more of. So even though it might mean that, for example, I've added sort of a late night email session to my world after a gig or after rehearsal, I usually would have just gone home and and relaxed. But now that with the Women's Brass Conference presidency and with two To Be Euphonium Studios, the email is large. And so that's one of the things that I've changed is I come home now and I do a late night email session, which I've decided is fine because for me right now, I like that I'm busy like I am. And that might change. And for the younger people listening, it's not that that's what's required. Many people have beautiful careers without being quite as busy. And we do need to remember that busy for its own sake really isn't what we're after, but things that fulfill you. And I'm somebody that gets a lot of really great positive energy from those things that I do. And that's why I do it. So did you, do you feel like your experience in the military? Cause that's a run, 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 run. Yeah. Gig. Do you feel like when you got out of there, you were itching for all that kind of stuff or is it is just, or is this how you're just wired? I think it is true that getting a job, because I went into that job real young. I was 19, so I didn't really have a chance to get set in a different type of adulthood. I came straight from Parentoni Studio, straight into a military band, and at the time we toured a lot and traveled a lot. 
So when I left there, I went straight into a full-time master's and doctorate. So that was also very busy. So I think I just set myself up in my 20s, like many of the students, that I just was busy. And I don't mind, I don't wish I had more time off because I, I like that I have a new adventure coming always. So why, um, how long were you in, in the military path? I did the Coast Guard band for seven years, which for me worked out really well because I was able to get my feet on the ground as a player. I was still somewhat young. Many people come into the military bands already having a master's and sometimes even doctoral study, but I hadn't. I was still in my sophomore year with Mr. P. So I felt like I needed to gel as a player and the brass sections of those bands are wonderful. So sitting next to the trombone and euphonium sections for seven years was, I think, really perfect for me. You get to sight read everything. You get a lot of work on how to travel and still play and how to keep a warm up routine going and that type of thing that you don't need to worry about when you're a full time college student. And when so then you get out, what did you have? Did you have an idea of what you were going to do afterwards? Like as like as your time was running up and you were because you were ending a contract, I assume. Yeah. So you knew that you was either, okay, I could sign on again, or do I, I want to pursue other things? So were you kind of, did you have a plan in mind or was it like, I just want to go on and do other things or. It was somewhat, that's a great question because I think that's one of the things that we don't talk about enough is that sense of when you need to make a change, how you do that, because you have a temptation to stay playing it safe. And for me, that would have been staying in the military. It's an amazing career. I wasn't sure that was for me, but I didn't have another job. I was, I don't know, 26 or seven or something. So I had to take a somewhat leap of faith. And so the plan was I got out and I went to study with Chester Schmitz at New England Conservatory and I did a master's in performance and then I went straight on and did a doctorate in performance. And my thought was I would try to take every audition there was and get either an orchestra job or some kind of college teaching position and that would be my next step. But I had a seven-year stretch where I went to the, where all that schooling was happening. I was doing private lesson teaching and I was freelancing. I worked at a donut shop. I did the gardens for a bed and breakfast, which was great because I could I could do that on my own time. So I just went in whenever I was free and then weeded the flower beds and it was very therapeutic. Like <laughs> so was it was really cool, actually. Yeah. So I did things like that to put myself through school and I taught and I just had to hope that what I was doing was going to be enough to get into another full-time job. This was pre-universal healthcare, so seven years without health insurance and not building retirement. So, but yeah, it worked. <laughs> that is that is the scary thing too. I mean, because like you said, military is such a great in terms of just safety and comfort. I mean, you the longer you're in, the higher your rank goes, the higher the right. budget goes, the better your. I mean, you get married, everybody gets covered underneath you. Yes. Um, you know, there's retirement benefits. I mean, and I'm sure they have some sort of 401k or Roth IRA. So like all these things that like we just eat up when we have the W2 um, yes. type jobs. So it's got to be that had you had to be itching for something else. And it's also interesting. And this is just for readers or listeners. Sorry, that it always seems interesting that there are some people who they get into their military job and it could be the president's own or it could be some like staff band somewhere. 
and they just absolutely love it and it's completely for them and they don't want to go anywhere they feel so artistically fulfilled from that that moving on just seems like ridiculous to them and then there are other people who they spend four years in the top top bands and they're like i I don't want this anymore and it's not it's not because i don't like the president's own or or the coast guard band or the army field band it's not because they don't like these guys but it's because it's just there's other things that they want to do. They've never been able to sit still and they can't do it now. And sometimes we don't think about it because we're in the studios and I was in the powerhouse studio and you're just, that's the goal. I got to get into the Marine band. I got to win the orchestra job and you just go, go, go. But you don't actually think about what happens after that. There's not a discussion about <laughs> what it would be like <laughs> once you got there or, or if that was for you. And so I think once you get there, you decide whether it is or, or is not for you. And I feel like I was lucky to have the best of both worlds because I was in, I understand that lifestyle. I can help students who are auditioning for military bands and I have all of the comrades and the friendship from those groups. And I still love going to the Army to be a phonium conference every year. It's like old home week kind of. <laughs> But then I can see what I could have done as more of a freelance player, too. So I feel like I I am so glad it worked out the way that it did. So with your own students, because I'm sure you have students in your studios that are like, you know, I want to be I want to play in the Chicago Symphony or I want to be in, you know, the Army Band or, you know, they they have these like, this is what I want to do. What are I mean, what kind of person do you see and they say, I want to be in a military band? And you go, yeah, you should. And what are the type of people where they say that? And you're like, no, 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 no. Don't do this. Because a lot of well, people will talk about they'll advocate for a position, but they won't tell you why you shouldn't be in the position. Right. I don't know that I would tell them they shouldn't either, because my thought is if you're there. There's the kind of person that's naturally suited to military life, which I was. I'm all right with following orders and I'm all right with structure. And I understand that the chain of command works well. And I'm willing to do that even if it's annoying sometimes. But there's another type of person that just chafes against that idea of structure and doesn't like having to be so bound by so many restrictions. And for that, and they 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 value freedom of action over (laughs) success, maybe. So those type of people might be less suited, but I would never say that to a tuba or euphonium student because it's such a good job. My hope would be if there was a student that chafed against authority, that maybe they could learn to corral that just a bit and get their student loans all paid (laughs) off by the army. So I would, I would more go at it from the standpoint of technique and playing, you've got to be in tune and you have to play in time. And those two things eliminate almost everyone. So, you know, you may feel that it's for you, but you, you've got to count. And so I think working with, (laughs) it more comes up that they're just not capable of playing with the qualities that you would need to have for the Chicago symphony or the Navy band. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. All of my students say it's like, Notes, man. That's all they care about. Yeah. Notes. Notes and playing pineapple pole as fast as they can. (laughs) And with tuba, we've gotten into this um, focus on F tuba as the be all and end all. And even undergraduate students are now thinking that they should be playing F tuba for their senior music ed recitals. And to me, the focus on F tuba before the student has developed a true foundation on the C tuba stuff might be in error. So I would, <laughs> <laughs> I would want the student. But to I want to play the Vaughn Williams. <laughs> I know you do. And, and I'm so excited 
for you. But right. So I think that we take our students out of the development of strong, big tuba playing for either orchestra or band too soon these days. It's become a little more normal to have an F tuba earlier. And I think that's also a problem with students that I see. They're excited about that soloistic side, but not very many of us get paid enough to live on playing the Vaughn Williams. Man, I know so many of you guys who are like grad students with me or whatever that got a nice shiny new, you know, 720 valve F tuba. <laughs> and they were so excited about it. And now they're playing like sousaphone at Disney because I'm here in Florida or something like that. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to sell my F. I have no, I never use it. It's just collecting dust. Um, so, so you get out of, so what's the timeline? So you get out of the military, you're like 26, 27. Yeah. So what's the timeline? Cause like just, I mean, looking at your bio, it's just like a checklist of all the things anybody would ever want to do. I mean, you've got a couple recordings out plus, you know, all the things. So what was the progression of things once you got out of the military? Well, I had always been doing chamber cause chamber is a big part of what I do now. So duos, and quartet, the To Be Funim Quartet that I play in Alchemy, we started out as the Coast Guard Band To Be Funim Quartet. And so that group carried on the whole way. And brass quintet has carried on the whole way for me. That's something I do a good amount of, too. And since the Coast Guard Band has both of those ensembles and I was in them when I was in, it's natural to continue doing them. So those always stayed. And in about 2005, the Alchemy to be Euphonium Quartet started going to Germany to do this residency that we do every year. And so that kept going as a nice, steady thing all along. And that kind of helped me get established more as a bigger name that I had some things that were farther afield. When I was in Connecticut doing school, I wasn't doing a huge amount of travel it was getting the college teaching position full-time that enabled me to start organizing my schedule to do a little more of that travel. So what were you, so this is all while you're doing like the day job stuff too, right? Right. I was starting to organize like as a solo recitalist a little bit more and then applying for jobs, but it's easier once your doctorate's finished, of course. (laughs) So I, once I finished it, I found that I was getting more interviews. And so when I got the job offer at Pembroke, it just made sense. I moved from Connecticut to North Carolina and that's been 10 years. I've been here. This is my 10th year of teaching, of teaching full-time. I had been doing part-time adjunct at Eastern Connecticut State University and at the Hart School. So I was building some experience as a college teacher. I was teaching classroom classes, which is always nice that you have that on your resume. And I was building that side of myself, the professor side. A lot of people get afraid of that too. Yeah. And and they, I think they think that it's too much work, but once you get like music appreciation, for example, there's a lot of classes of that offered everywhere. And if you can get sort of organized to have a way you do it and get notes going and everything. Once you set up your course, it doesn't take that much time from week to week. You just correct when there's an exam. So if you're somebody that's starting out and you have an opportunity to do not just your instrument, maybe at a smaller local college, but take the music appreciation class if they offer it, it'll get, it'll be a good chunk of pay in your contract and maybe there'll be an extra course. They asked me at one point to teach a history of opera, which is a bit outside of my <laughs> However, oh, Lord. I'm really awesome at the ones where there's tuba. So, <laughs> so that cuts out about 75% of the history there. 
we're going to go straight to Wagner. Yeah. So I said yes to that because I wouldn't have said no, right? This is a time in your life when you want to try to say yes. So don't shy away from the classroom classes, even though you're a performer, because sometimes that's how you get in the door. And then if you're at somewhere, when I got to Pembroke, for example, they had created a full-time low brass position. They knew they wanted to up their game for having um, a full-time person there all the time, but there weren't that many majors because it had been part-time. So I taught orchestration and arranging, ethnomusicology. I taught the class from 1750 to the present music history. And I think I taught some music appreciation all that very first year until my studio got up and running. And then as I've been along, I've taught less classroom classes and more students. But it's not something, and I have all performance degrees, so nothing in my training prepared me exactly to teach orchestration and arranging, for example. But I can do it, and so can you, as long as we sit down and plan it out. Yeah, it seems like I've talked to some other people about you know, don't be afraid to teach freshman theory at a community college or something like that. And it seems like a lot of times, uh, do you have graduate students in any of your studios? Yes. So, and you can tell me if it's changed since you got, we're getting your, your master's or your doctorate. But when I was getting my master's in performance, there was a lot of the, you know, the pedagogy and all that kind of stuff. But it was also like you had, it was almost like you had two majors, like I was a euphonium major. And then I was also a side theory major. (laughs) <laughs> because because they were preparing me to have to do those types of things to get my foot in the door to teach college. So there were you you would you would pick a history or a theory or a piano or something like that that you knew really well to also be able to teach, you know. So I feel like qualified now to teach freshman and sophomore level theory. Um and that's kind of the way cuz that's that's what's if you can be more attractive on your resume. Right. And you can do more things. I mean, no, it's it's unless you are yeah, unless you've been playing in an orchestra for 40 years, you know, the New England Conservatory is not going to call you in to do to, to teach full time faculty teach tuba like that's not going to happen no matter how good you are. So but, you know, um, uh, somewhere like some summer, some smaller university or even larger universities like you know, like where you are at, at ECU or something like that. Or, or, you know, I was talking to Andy Smith at yeah. Campbell and like, he's, he's one of the directors of bands, but he's right. also the tuba guy. Like, and if you can say yes to these things, you become more attractive. And that seems like, I mean, now you're kind of doing just tuba. Like, are you teaching any classroom classes? I have, I have kept one class and I tend to sometimes do the brass methods class as well. Is that, that for you, though? Or like, did they make you do that? Or do you just enjoy doing those things? And I do enjoy doing it. But sometimes the studio size fluctuates. And so there's been some years when I've had enough majors that I was too full. This year, I graduated a few. So now I'm back with doing brass class. So it kind of varies depending on how much the studio would take up for your teaching load. Gotcha. And, and like, and, yeah, because you're. I mean, your main goal, or as I understand it, as a studio teacher is you have to fill ensembles in terms right. of recruiting. And so with our instruments, I mean, if you're looking at most larger universities, you might have two wind bands and an orchestra. So that's a grand total of five tubas and four euphoniums minimum, right? Right. And that's not, all, that's not a gigantic studio. No, so you could have uh, extra class. You could teach theory or what have you. Mm. At East Carolina, there are three bands 
and an orchestra. And then in the lower level band, which is sort of the one that's open to all, you could run six or seven tubas if you really wanted to. So there's, I think, there's 20, there's 19 tubuphonium majors there right now, and they're all doing ensembles. So we we're able to, yeah. And then at Pembroke is a smaller school, and so I don't, I'm not expected to have 10 or 12 euphonium majors. If I did, nobody would mind, but <laughs> there, there's, there's not a need for that as much in a smaller program. So you're exactly right. The flexibility. In fact, one of the things that I think is interesting that I learned is that for us in the collegiate to be euphonium world, we assume that we learn teaching regardless if we go to a good teacher, because you learn that through them modeling for you. I studied with Mr. P. He taught me how to teach every single day. I worked with him and my degrees happened to be in performance. And when I interviewed, there was some concern in the panel that somebody with performance degrees would not be a good teacher. So it became a disadvantage at a smaller school like where I am. It's not Eastman, right? It's a smaller school. There's a concern that you need to be able to teach. And the performance degrees were a little that that was unusual for them to have applicants with a lot of performance degrees. So you just make sure that your teaching in the interview portion is spot on and that you understand your pedagogy. They're going to ask you a question, for example, such as what is a great senior recital list for a euphonium music ed major and be able to talk about that was one of the interview questions. And so as long as you can choose. <laughs> You've got that one I, in the back pocket now. <laughs> right. Horvitz. So, Horvitz, right? Horvitz. Yeah, Horvitz. <laughs> so as long as you can show that you understand what teaching is, the performance side will be an advantage rather than a disadvantage. Stuff like right. That. So, oh, you as a studio teacher, because I'm going to get this question from the high school people. I get this question a lot. I teach... I teach mostly, um, though I do have some older students, I teach mostly um, high school juniors and seniors. I teach, I get a lot of the the kind of the all-state kids and the all-county kids that obviously I'm going to be a music major students. And we're in college audition time. And the question yeah. is, is like, you know, a lot of mine, I'm, I'm blessed because I live where I went to undergrad with Jay Hunsberger. So I know how he is, but I feel like he has a lot of thoughts. But I want to I'm curious what you think when you're looking for people coming in to your studio. You know, I mean, what gets you in? What are what are the qualities that you look in for an incoming freshman? Well, it's interesting because I think that the basics, like one of the biggest things is I know this is slightly a weird answer, but posture so sometimes students will come and maybe their family has been very lucky and they've been able to have, it happened recently, somebody came in for a private lesson before their college audition started that's not a regular student and they've been studying all along since middle school. There are, they're a senior in high school and often that will happen as a college teacher, I'll get somebody just checking in you know, for a different view from their regular teacher. And I think that posture, especially for tuba, for euphonium, it's a little more straightforward. Try not to stick it way out on your knee and you're good. <laughs> but for don't uh, make your students do that, right? They but gotta hold it up. Yeah, I know. What a pain. So with tuba though, a lot of times tubas will do weird things like they will have it on a tuba stand, but the tuba stand will be much too high. So they're creating a stretch in their neck. Or they'll rest it out. If you can envision a tuba player sitting on their lap, they'll put the bottom of the tuba out on their left knee 
and then they'll stretch over and turn to the side. That's a very common one. And I think it's because the band directors from the front of the room with everybody in the band set up, they're not catching it. They're not realizing. So the posture affects, of course, everything, tone, tuning, register. If you change the way someone sits, they can probably play a fifth higher on the tuba. So I think that paying attention to posture, we just had auditions um, last weekend, and I noticed that as well in multiple instruments, the sense that posture is just willy-nilly, I think. So, you know, I can have you work on articulation with them a little so that they're a little cleaner. Um, and I also want to make sure that there's a sense that the tempo is not the be-all and end-all. If it says Allegro Vivace and you play it Allegro Vivace, but it's all muddled, it doesn't count. <laughs> so, right? so I feel like there's a sense that I'm obligated to go at this tempo with the Haddad, for example, right? That's one that where it gets faster and faster. And so just chill out and relax and play it where you can articulate. Because, of course, the, the panel's sitting there looking at you. They're thinking, all right, I've got eight tuba majors already. So I'm looking at these four incoming auditioning tuba majors. And I might graduate one or two, but I'll still have six or seven even next year. Do I really need all four of these if they're going to need a lot of prep and attention to fix if there's an embouchure thing. Embouchure is less of a worry with tuba because there's a lot of space, but still. So I think people need to watch that they're not overplaying for their level with the tempo so that they can be clear. And again, the other thing is pitch center. Most of our concert bands, even at our really fine high school programs, do wobble a little bit to the sharp side. So our students come in and they're playing everything pretty sharp but as a soloist, we would want to try to take them back to pitch, right, in our private lessons when they're not with the band or if they've done solo and ensemble and they had to be a little sharp. And there's nothing wrong with that. But as a soloist, they need to dial it back so that they're playing everything at A440 again. And I find that that's something, too. Have you found any correlation with two things? Um, I So have you found any correlation with people who – have done private lessons throughout their high school years and, you know, how they play or being accepted into, into your studios. And then the other thing too is, have you found that, I mean, have you ever had people come in and just take a couple of lessons with you before they audition to your schools? Yes. And have you had any correlation with acceptance rate with people who do that? I'm just curious. Definitely. Because I think that the ones who aren't taking lessons it may be that there's a very helpful, lovable band director in the background and he or she is maybe coaching once in a while. But I think that that comes like I just had somebody come in with one of our more standard pieces and it was a long concerto first movement, but they'd only really learned the first half. So here they are. I'm going to play such and so movement one. OK, great. But then they, they kind of by the halfway point. It was clear that, and so I said, all right, we're going to either have to learn the rest of this or we can't use this piece. Like there was a sense from them that the piece was fine to use, but I can correct that if I see them ahead of time. I can say, look, you should just be playing something slightly easier that you can play all of instead of a, this sense of half a movement. Mm -hmm. You know, like so, some people might come in, say, with more so symphonique on trombone and they say, I'm going to play the first page. Well, no, <laughs> I would be, I'd rather hear you play Barat and play all of it than only the first page of Morso. So stuff like that. They don't understand that that's weird to, to just play a little tiny part of 
something. So you can correct that if you have a chance to see them. There are little, like, a lot of the things that I find, like, are just spotty education things. And it's just because they're, like, you know, and it's not the band director's fault. You're teaching 120 kids at one go. I mean, you can't hit everybody with everything. And especially if you're a saxophone player, let's say, like, there's no way you know that, like, like, I had a kid and he comes from a saxophone playing band or a band director and he he was like he was in a lesson he was trash talking anybody who reads trouble clef euphonium <laughs> and i was just like that's a skill you need to have and i'm going to start trash talking you actually for not taking the time to do so because you need to do both you need that's right. on, on this instrument you need to be able to do both when people ask you what clef you want you say yes that's right and it, you know and that's just like one of the things you know and there's a lot of things like that that you know, you and I know because we've been in the world so long. And there's also stuff, you know, people go, I have, you know, students who are like, I want to audition at this college. And I'll be like, oh, so-and-so's a great guy. You would love, yeah, you know, like, I can, I can email him on your behalf and stuff like that. Um, versus just blindly going in and not right. doing anything. Um, so, so, and now you, and so you've also got a lot of the chamber stuff that you're doing. Now, are you still... Because I know you have there's the Athena Brass Band with the conference, and then you yes. also are you in a you're also in a quintet as well. Well, I play in various brass quintets um, around the North Carolina area, and there's of course a faculty brass quintet here at UNC Pembroke, and this is the South, so I've got a lot of church. There's a lot of church work for brass quintet, so I do a lot of that and quartet. That's not going Ooh. to be. Neither one of those are going to be for the Women's Brass Conference that Michael Parker and I will play with our jam duo and I'll play with Athena. There's also a wonderful group called the Monarch Brass that the IWBC Mm -hmm. puts together, the Women's Brass Conference. It's kind of like a who's who of awesome. Yeah. And so they will be playing on the Women's Brass Conference as well. And since I'm playing with Athena, I probably won't also be playing with them because we have concurrent rehearsal time but it's going to be a fun time for me to get together because brass band is as you know becoming more and more popular here in in the u.s for people like me who weren't already in the naba thing thank goodness Uh, yeah and so so that's something that we're seeing really develop with collegiate playing opportunities as well as grown-up adult playing opportunities and it is really fun um oh no so so with all of the, the the chamber playing and then i'm sure you also I mean, you've got your own solo stuff going on as well. You've got CDs and stuff like that. You're plus also yeah. being a Yamaha artist. I assume that they send you to places to play and, and you right. know, plug their stuff. And so when so it's balancing all of that a problem with teaching the studio stuff. And because I, I bet at this point you're kind of and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I you're probably like your calendar just fills like you're, it's just happening without yes. And and I might be wrong. I mean, do you are you at a point still where you have to market yourself and find the gigs or are they just kind of slowly materializing as the year goes on? You know, it's interesting because that is something that has shifted. They do now come to me in a way that they did not 10 years ago. And so I am able to have some more choice. And the other thing I've learned as in the last decade, as I've gotten a lot more busy is that the calendar only has so many weekends in it. So if you're if you're going to go to a conference, like I'm going, I'm about to go off to the Indianapolis um, Music for All Festival, and then I'm going to come back and then I'm going to go to Arizona for the Southwest Tuba Euphonium Conference in Tucson, and then I'll be home a little bit, and then I'm off to the Northwest one 
at Washington State University, there's only so many weekends that one could do some gigging. And after they fill up, it's very straightforward. You don't have any more time. So I'm now booking more ahead than I was before. So if somebody called me and said, we want to have you out to do a solo with our band, I would be talking to them about October or November instead of great, you know, how about next month, which is maybe what I would have done in the past. So it's kind of straightforward because once you're full, you're full. And the teaching, I make sure that I'm, if I'm going to travel, I make sure that I do it on the back end of the teaching week. Like I will often leave Thursday night and drive in the evening to a gig or a conference so that I can still teach the students on Thursday. My students are great. They're very flexible. So they don't mind having their lesson on a different day if I'm taking off for a conference recital or something. So it is a lot to manage. You've got the two orchestras as well. So do you get their calendars and then work around those things as well? Yeah. And sometimes I, you, cause you and I get to pick, that's the cool thing about life. We get to decide if there's a week in September and I have the option to do the orchestra or I have the option to go and do a clinic for Yamaha, or I have the option to tour with the brass quintet. I get to pick. And so you decide what's a priority. And when you don't have anything but orchestra, it's always orchestra, but sometimes There'll be like it's like I decided this year between doing the the music for all festival with Yamaha and the Surtec, and I've never missed a Surtec. So that was a tough decision. I had the two things, and I finally decided to go with the Indianapolis trip. But you can decide which at that point matters more. So my fall orchestra schedule will go onto my calendar, but then if I have some recital touring on top of that, then I'll just sit down and decide which would I rather do. And then, as I said, once you fill the weekend, the weekend is full and then you're done. And so it's it's not as crazy as you might imagine. Yeah, it is fun. It's fun being at the point now like there's like I, I sub in for a small college here. They have a really a really good tight knit group of players, but they don't have a very large amount of players. So they hire in some professionals to come in. So they don't they don't have the students play lower level literature they get to play the same high level literature that you'd play at any other college. Um, but they, they fill out the ensemble and we do like a weekend of rehearsals in the gig and it doesn't pay yeah. extremely well, but I get, I like the band director. I like the kids just fine. And so I, yeah. I but I look at the list, I go, anything I like, okay. Or, or right. nope, not going to do like nothing, not going to do this. Um, and so it, it's interesting to be able to get to do those things and, and, and pick and choose. Um, do you, cause I'll, but do you feel like that is a booster to you? Because a lot of people would get bogged down by that. They would be like, I have to choose between these three responsibilities and they would get nervous about upsetting one person or one organization over another. Um, and do you ever feel like there's a stress with that? There is, there's usually rules with orchestras, for example, that if you miss more than a couple of the season, then maybe you're, you're in, in danger of not having in the slot anymore. So you do want to watch that. And also I never do this, but there's people that will take whatever it is and then just sub it out at the last minute if they get something else. And you don't want to do a huge amount of that because if you end up double and triple booking yourself and then subbing out, you're going to be seen as untrustworthy if the subs don't work out as well, or there's some kind of a glitch. So I, I would really try to, once I've committed to something 
unless it's a really major event where you might go and develop a personal relationship with the personnel manager so that you can go to them and say, look, I've had this great opportunity. It's just come in. I've found you a sub who can do the whole thing, but you want to be seen as reliable and you want them to know that you will be the one that is at the gig rather than a last minute sub because you got something better. So I think that that's another thing too. Once you commit, don't change it unless you really feel there's no way you can turn down an opportunity. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a lot of, I mean, if you're one of those people who gets the game, I mean, I'm sure you didn't say in your interview or your audition that, oh yeah, I plan to sub out a lot. So I mean, right. you're, you're literally lying. You're, you're, you're literally being a boldface liar when you go and do these things. Um, and if something you jump out just because it offers you a little bit more money or it's closer yeah. to home or something like you're, you're still not being the type of person that other people would want to work with. Right. Um, yeah. And as we know, with the world of social media, your reputation, once it's gone, there's we're all a dime a dozen. So once you've made some poor personnel manager stay up till midnight, madly emailing other euphonium players or whatever, and once you've pulled out of a last minute thing for, for another time for this poor band director who set their whole day up based on your visit or whatever it was, you just, you're going to have negative energy. And we do not want that. So how did you just kind of going now on toward towards the uh the like the, the business end and the industrial end of the things you're doing so you you are a yamaha artist how did that kind of come across was that did you approach them did they approach you how did that work out they approached me because when i got to pembroke i began teaching and the percussion professor here at the time was tracy wiggins who is now at north alabama and he was a yamaha artist and he and i did our doctorates together at the heart school so that's one of those things that he was not on the hiring committee, but him knowing me was certainly an advantage. When you have people that you're connected to in the field, he didn't help me get this job, but he could go into the people and say, hey, you know, one of your applicants is a dear friend of mine. This is all that she is. And so I knew somebody here and that was awfully nice. And so when I got here, having been newly hired, he was a Yamaha artist, and so Yamaha was already coming out to Pembroke. We play, the marching band uses Yamaha equipment, and so it was a natural stretch for the Yamaha rep at the time to come to my door and say hello on the way, and so they approached me, and I was already playing Yamaha, so it, it worked out perfectly, and it's been great for me because it gives me more chances to get out and about. It's obviously a worldwide company, so things that are outside of my local county here in North Carolina, which is, which is, yeah, great. that's, I was, and that's what I was asked. What's, what are the benefits of, of doing that kind of stuff? Well, I, I love travel. Obviously we started our conversation this morning talking about that. There some people hitting the road is kind of, it's a downer, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but for me, I love it. I look forward to travel. I enjoy packing. I enjoy unpacking. I don't mind doing laundry. It's all good. So, Yamaha will run festivals, for example, the one that I'm doing next month, band festivals in the summer and in the spring, where the Yamaha artists will come out and be clinicians, and both at the middle school and high school level, and that's something that I love. So I will play for the kids as well. I always solo in a clinic to start just so that they can hear it. And then sometimes there's chamber music too. They'll put the faculty together in, in chamber groups. I did a really wild one last summer where it just so happened that who was there that we could kind of work together. We ended up doing flute, oboe, clarinet, and tuba. 
So I played the bassoon part and we read some woodwind quartets and we performed for the kids on that. So they get to see you play. So I like that I can combine the role as of soloist on tuba euphonium and also educator. So it's usually me going somewhere and giving a set of clinics on their behalf and then also soloing in some capacity, which is the best of both worlds. It's great. So you do double on euphonium. I do. I think that's important to recognize, too, because one of the things we're talking about today is the younger people or the people at the beginning, what's important to know. And one of the things that's important to know is tuba and euphonium go together in our professional world. This Pembroke job that I am in, that is a wonderful full time job. I'm tenured. I have, as we've said, a healthy retirement. I have medical care. I am set to go in my beautiful little part of North Carolina. That job I only got because I could play trombone, euphonium, and tuba all. And then once I got here and I grew the program, we were able to do trombone as a separate adjunct position. That's something that is not as strong for me as tuba and euphonium. But I taught it for two or three years when I first got here. Yeah, more co- more and more colleges are going towards the low brass person right. in general. And it, they can't, it seems like, and they haven't started doing it with high brass, quote unquote, yet because right. trumpet players are afraid of the French horn. <laughs> um, but it seems like, like, yeah, it, it, that is a that is a just a circle because it's also a smaller studio size compared right. to everything else going on. Um, and for those who don't know, they would just assume, yeah, isn't euphonium just trombone with buttons? Like, 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 the, and they, it's not right. because of them; they just don't know. They haven't been in the world, um, and so being multifaceted like that right. is really handy. And for me, I need to recruit the euphonium players too. So, yeah, so if I can be out on YouTube and out on Facebook holding a euphonium and being musical on the euphonium, clearly all of my degrees are in tuba, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I can, I know how to practice. And, and so I think it's important that people see me on both and I understand the pitfalls of euphonium if I'm working on it too. And, and I think that that's an important idea. And also just being... Because as a tuba play, if you just play tuba as a Yamaha representative and you came to blah, blah, blah high school, I guarantee you they're going to throw euphonium players into your little right. clinic and they're going to go, what what can you tell me about my YEP 321? You know, and you have to know these things and, and the right. tendencies of those instruments and all that kind of stuff, um, you know. And it's, you know, it's not not everybody can just represent just one instrument and all and all that. So do you. So with and so you, you talked about being like being ever present on like YouTube and all the social media, you are very active. I mean, we set this up because of Twitter. Right. Um, so you're, you're quite active on on Instagram and on YouTube and all these types of things. Do you find that that is important to maintain as well in our in our profession now? Um, do you feel like it's becoming ever more important? I, yeah, so I do, but I'm so scared of what people are putting out there. So <laughs> I think for you and I, who don't put things out there that can be, um, that can be sort of, I don't know, the, the, so there's, there's a negativity to a lot of people's social media. So I hesitate to say, yes, please do all of your social media to everyone because their social media isn't really okay. <laughs> so to me, social media is a way, like it's like a second website or, or a, a second YouTube channel when you put a video on just Instagram rather than just linking over to YouTube, for example. To me, that's a way to maybe more people will see it and you want 
to be seen. We talked about, for me, I'm in this great full-time position, but it happens to be in rural North Carolina. So for me to connect to the field and stay active in between Tuba conferences, I think it's great for us to see each other on Twitter and to connect on Facebook. And I, I just have some rules for social media for myself. And I worry that especially younger people, one of the things that I notice with my students is they think of Facebook or Instagram as something that is for their friends to see, but they forget that their professors and the local band directors that they're going to become colleagues with in a few years when they graduate, that they're also seeing that. So I think that, you know, there's there, there perhaps could be a little bit less uh, negativity in posts and political posts. I get why people do that and that's completely fine. But for me, I want to promote myself and my energy and enjoy the, our pictures of cups of coffee together <laughs> and a pretty tree that you saw on the way to work. And, and I, I think that our world is is it's encroaching too much, the, all the outside influences. So I, I worry for people in their social media that it's making them seem ill-equipped to handle their career and in, instead of showing them in a positive light, it sometimes shows them in a negative light. Yeah, I was talking to uh, Mike Forbes. He's got a CD on my or he's got a he's got a piece on my CD that I'm putting out this summer. Awesome. And so we were just talking about that um, polar vortex. I don't know if you have any other guys working on that um, for it's on Falcone. Oh, for, right. For young artists. But okay. um, but yeah, so we we're talking about it. He was talking about we were talking about recordings, right? And how the CD is not what it used to be. You know, it's and he was calling it an electronic business card. And that's exactly what I think about my Instagram and my fa like my Facebook artist page and my YouTube is that is a that is a social media business card. That's that's exactly right. what it is, because I and I, it's funny. I heard this from Gary Vanderchuk. He says, you know, we're going to have to explain our tweets to our grandkids. Right. You, you're going to have to like like for me, I'm going to have to tell people like my kids of like why I just say such bad things about the Pittsburgh Steelers. Like, why do you hate them so much? Well, that's because it's, it's going to be, they're going to be able to find it. There's public record. Like I, I'm so thankful that I don't have public record of any of the stupid things I said when I was 11, 12, 13, and just an angry, angsty teen. Right. So you're, you're completely right. We've got a, we've, you do have to vet the things. And if you want it to be personal, then like, like for me, and I don't know if you have some of these outlets like this, but like my personal Facebook is just that. I have the artist page to separate right. the fan base from my friends. Um, and they, they intermingle sometimes, but I do like I don't allow my my high school students. They can like my Facebook artist page and they can talk to me on there. My Instagram, even my Snapchat. I'm fine with that. I've known that these are professional things, but my Facebook is still mine. That is my spot. I mean, right. I, I'm sure you have situations that are very similar as well. Yeah, we want to make sure that you, especially the younger people who don't have yet a reputation, that they are seen as trustworthy and positive. I mean, companies vet these things now, too. That's right. Um, and for positive and negative, I mean, I'm sure if I were to apply to a company to you know, be an artist with them, I, like a lot of things that they're looking at now is like how many followers does he have on Instagram? Like what's what's their what's their visual impact to the community that that they're in their niche, um, and who are the who is that niche that they're talking to and all that kind of stuff, and, or you know, but also do you have like you know white supremacy tweets like 
right? Things like that. You can't do that. <laughs> people, yeah, I know people who have lost out on gigs because of sharing distasteful. And to them, they're just, it's just funny, but you can't do that when you're unprofessional. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of like, especially in our world, as you know, tuba euphonium players can be quite vulgar. <laughs> um, and you and there, you know, there are also activities that they we like to partake in at the conferences and all this kind of stuff. But like, there are plenty of people who post these things, and then there are people who do not. That's right. And there's there's a clear line of separation and professionalism between those two types of people. And I would advise our our listeners who are beginning their careers to pay close attention to the people that they really admire, their role models, and how they use social media. Because at the very top of our field, that's what you see. Core, straight-on professionalism. There is not a post that says anything that's negative about anything in their space, any people. They just will refrain from mentioning. Because you know that the top players in our field get frustrated and have bad days and maybe feel less agile on the horn some days than, but they're not posting that and they're not sharing that and they're not destroying relationships by venting their control. It's self-control, right? They're controlling that. And then they're just putting up something positive so that we see them in a positive way. And I think we all should do more of that. So, and then talking about social media and we, re I reached out to you through Twitter um, but not actually to you. I reached out to the International Women's Brass Conference tweet because I think it's a really cool, a very interesting thing. Um, it's always held in the Great White North, so I can never get to it. Um, <laughs> but uh, so what what exactly is the International Women's Brass Conference? How long has it been going on and what what's the focus? Uh, like, I'm a guy. Am I allowed to go and participate in the competitions and all that kind of stuff? Yes, definitely. So there was an awesome woman. She's retired now, but she's still with us. Susan Slaughter who was a woman who played principal trumpet with the St. Louis Symphony for many years, I think almost 40 years. And she was sort of alone. It's like anything, gender or race-wise. There are just a few minorities and whatever the minority is in that situation. In Brass, the woman is the minority. And she decided that she was sitting alone in a section and it would have been awfully nice if she could have talked to some of the other people like Abby Conant, who was a trombonist, who was probably also sitting alone as the lone woman in a section. So she founded, and it's been 25 years, this, this year is our 25th anniversary. She founded an organization so that she could have some conferences and get people, men and women, like Jean Procorny, for example, has been on the board of it from the very beginning. He's an, um, an emeritus board member. She reached out to Leonard Slatkin. She reached out to high-end professional men, as well as women like Abby Conant, who's a trombonist who's been kind of a trailblazer. And she put together a conference in St. Louis at Washington University where she gathered together all these people, and it was a typical conference, competitions, recitals, big group solo things, chamber ensembles, double brass quintets that we did. And she featured male composers and women composers. She invited men and women, all the students from the local Midwestern area. And by complete chance, it was my second year in the U.S. Coast Guard Band. I had just joined. And Jan Duga, who was an awesome lady who played tuba in the U.S. Air Force Band in D.C., she was the first woman tubist in a premier service band. And when she was tubist, she was the only one until I came in and I was the second. So when I enlisted, she called me up and she said, I've been waiting for you because I want to make an all women to be a military quartet. But she couldn't because there wasn't a second tuba yet. 
So she and I organized a all women to be funny military quartet with army band, air force band and coast guard band players. And we went and played at this women's brass conference. So I was all of 22 or something. And it was eye opening. Velvet Brown was there. She and I are about the same age. She was starting out as well. She gave a solo recital. I remember and it was just amazing to see there was a big seminar, I remember, on taxes. So they, they had a whole panel discussion on how to do your tax. We never get that information. And that was men and women. So this it wasn't all gender based, but it was a, just a chance for people to get together and discuss what types of things come up as a woman and how you deal with some some disses when you get them and and to meet great artists. And so Susan ran the organization and every two or three years she had a conference and then it grew. There's a board of directors and I got a chance to get onto the board of directors a couple of years back. And then it's something that I've just been thrilled to be involved with because I had that experience going in so young. So it's men and women. And now there's a, a real good machine behind it. So there's a lot of money in the competitions. So there's a website for the conference, which is IWBC2017.com. And there, there is a $5,000 cash prize for the solo competition. So it's serious money. And it's open to men and women. There's different divisions. There's a mock orchestra and band component. So speaking earlier about the band, how do you get these military band jobs? One of the ways you get them is you do the mock military band auditions, like at Surtech. And like there, there's another one. For, and again, they're all open to men and women. The conference is open to men and women. But it's just trying to show how we look at gender in the band world, in the brass world, and then by extension in percussion and woodwinds too. So it's I'm really proud of it. I just think of it like just in my, our – like just off the top of my head, I, there's so many just fantastic female artists out there that'd be cool to just go to a place just because you know they're gonna be there. Like, right? Just like, I mean, there's obviously like you, but I know Gail Robertson's been involved with it before, yeah. and she's she's fantastic, and she's got the she's got the duet um, with Stacy. But you've also, yeah. I mean, you've also got like you said, Velvet and Dana Swoboda and. Who else? Serif Brass now. They're awesome. Are they going right. to be there? They are. They're going to play a recital. It's going to be great. So we're going to try to, um, as much as we can, Facebook Live or stream as much of it as we can for folks that are farther away. It's in Rowan, New Rowan University in New Jersey. And so Southern New Jersey. So it's it's on the East Coast. We do try to vary the locations every couple of years. So it's something that I I feel strongly that we don't separate by gender as far as thinking, well, now that there's a woman um, brass band, we don't need to have any women in our other brass bands. I don't want us. To be, <laughs> I don't want us to be there. But one of the things that Serif Brass or the Athena Brass Band, which is an all-women brass band, one of the things it does is it's so unusual to hear really high-level brass playing and look and see it all be women. And I think that that that's valuable because it resets us. It reminds us, okay. We, we weren't really trying to be discriminatory, but it's just what we're used to. We're used to seeing brass sections and it's usually more male. And so when we're struck by an entire 10 or 12 piece brass choir, that's women or a brass quintet. So it's not that all women should be what our goal is, but our goal should be more mixed than it is. Well, it's, it's about, it seems to me from the get go, it's, it's about, it's not about, you know, empowering women in brass necessarily, though it may do that. It, it seems like it's more just a place for 
for you guys to come together and talk about this issue and and, and things like that. I mean, and, and, and this is not a this is not a specific tuba euphonium, low brass, brass. This is not a specific thing. I mean, I hear the conversations about, you know, some of my best friends are male flute players. Right. And they're a minority in that section. And like they, exactly. they, they talk about just how, it, you know, it's a little awkward. It's a little weird. And, you know, and, and but having a place with, you know, like minded individuals in which to discuss topics is, is always great. I mean, that's why we have Surtech so we can just talk with tuba euphonium players. And, that's right. You know, and and, and this seems like a very, very similar idea. It's not exclusive. It's inclusive um, right. with a specific topic. Right. Exactly. And like all conferences, anybody can put in to go and play. And, and so it's an opportunity for people to give recitals and clinics. And so. So cool. Yeah, that's great. So yeah. and the, you ha- there's social media involved with all of that, too, which I'll link yep. all of that stuff in the descriptions and everything down below, as well as your things, too. Um, who all is going to be like what are cause what all goes on at the conference? So there, I'm sure there are presentations, performances. What all what else? Right. There's warm up sessions and there's a historical component, which we've sometimes seen with iTech, um, where there's because that's something that I also chair. We, we have what we call pioneers. And I think that's what, one of the special things about um, this conference is that women who've been the first of something um, like um, you know, the first orchestral horns, trombones and trumpets that were women in major orchestras or military band players, we honor them. And so when you go you see the historical aspect and there's displays set up so that you can see the last one we did the conference two years ago. I, we did a whole women in the military during world war two component. And so we had a lot of information about the women's military bands and, and people could read and see the history, which is both racial and gender based in world war two, the bands were all segregated by race as well as gender. And so it's interesting to remind our younger students for whom that is ancient history that it's not all that like these, these women are still alive. They're older, but they're still alive. And and the band world was OK with everything being segregated by race and gender. And it's today, like, we, yeah, it's like a league of their own. But for. Brands. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so one of the I think the important roles for the conference is, you know, the we have plans for the lobby of where the conference takes place to set up all these displays where people can wander through and see and just be reminded Oh my gosh, this wasn't all that long ago. Remember, the premier service bands were all male until the early 70s. You did not, no matter how well you played, you could not be a member of the President's Own or the United States Coast Guard Band if you were a woman until the 1970s. And those women are not all that old that, that came in. It's not that long ago. So we we are in danger of slipping backward in that regard, I think. Oh, no. You can't do that. Um. So, yeah, actually, one of my best... You you you'll laugh at this, but I've got a killer girl tuba player right awesome. now in my studio, and she's she's all about. She wants to run. She wants to go up to the conference later. She's in eighth grade right now, but she's like, I want to go up down the line and compete and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, done. Let's yeah. do it. She's excited yep. about it. That's um, great because she's listening. I mean, she's listening to recordings of you guys and um, all the all the people involved. So so we're about a, at time here. Do you, so I ask, I ask everybody this, do you have any resources for the audience that were just things that were inspirational or helpful for you coming up through any parts of your career? Um, it could be music related or not. Um, do you have any of those to share with us? Well, this is an oldie, but goodie and, and a very common answer, I think to this question, but I am a big fan of Stephen Covey's 
Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which is a book from 1989. So it's uh, it's ancient history. My students are all born in the 90s. So that book's a long time ago for them. But one of the things that I think is important from that book is that he, this is not a music book. It's a, it's a how to manage your life kind of book for, for business. Um, but one of the big things I think that it's necessary for us to pull out of that is he makes a distinction between, this is uh, us managing our lives, between things that are important and things that are urgent. And we have a weakness for attacking the tasks that are newest or that seem like putting out fires, like the emergency last minute thing, we tend to do those first. And we don't do enough long-term career planning. That's something that I do a lot of. I have five-year and 10-year plans that are all typed out with bullets and everything. And that's me being a little bit more over the top. Not everybody has to do that. (laughs) But for me, the long-term plan, so you sit down and you take 15 minutes when there is no interruptions and you only think about what you want to do in the next five years and stop putting out those fires when that person emails you in an emergency and they need this score and they need whatever. Just that's an urgent thing that may not be very important. And so that book, Seven Habits, it's things like that that can reset our assumptions. One of the things, for example, that's really important to me is that I won't do email until I have done my warm up in the morning. So if I am not on tour and not in a hotel, I come in and I do my full warm up, which is about an hour to two hours. And I will not allow myself to do any email. They're coming in a mile a minute. Those emails are pinging in. But that's one of those things that I encourage everybody to get that book and read it. It really helps you reset. That practice session for me is central. I have to get it in. I do not have to answer your email about, do I have the score to the six studies in English folk song? (laughs) I can answer that this afternoon. (laughs) So, and another thing I'm a big fan of is doing yoga. And even as a way to manage performance stress and performance anxiety, that's a question I get a lot as a soloist. How do you work on performance anxiety? How do you stay calm? The answer to that is you just have to do a thousand recitals. (laughs) <laughs> but in, but in the short term, like I, I'm a big fan of the yoga instructor Rodney Yee, Y-E-E is his last name. And he has a lot of DVDs out and he is married to another yoga instructor whose name is Colleen Sedman. And Colleen Sedman, S-A-I-D-M-A-N, she has a new book out, which is called Yoga for Life, which is an autobiography. And that is something that's been very inspiring to me of recent. She's just published it. And it's about yoga, but it's about her journey. And she's somebody that's real famous in the yoga field. And they get booked a lot for high-end yoga retreats. And she's had a lot of strife and a lot of trouble in her life. And it's very inspiring to read. So my advice would be look outside. Of course, I read the Tuba Journal, right? And of course, I, I you know, but... But look outside of Tuba Euphonium as well, because I think that the people who are doing high-end dance and art and yoga have a lot to offer us as well, because we they are also performing and they are also doing something that's their love as their career. So the business angle of that, I think, is important, too. So those are some things that I would recommend. Yeah, I've heard Seven Habits has... I've heard it on many other podcasts. Yes. It has You are the first to bring it up on this one. Good. So... So we, and it is, it's mentioned all the time because it is a staple. It's where a lot of people start off on. Well, Hey, uh, any, so do you have any more advice for young musicians trying to figure this whole thing out? I would say, don't be afraid to be busy. Don't be afraid to think that you'll be so overwhelmed that your quality will go down because it might not. 
You just have to reestablish if playing is your thing, you have got to get the time on your face. But once you get the time on your face situated, don't be afraid to book. Don't be afraid to go out. I am also a proponent of doing things for free when you are a young person. I know that's somewhat of a debate in our field, but if you are offered a gig and there will be some good exposure and it doesn't pay and you're 18 years old, you should go and do it. It should be something that you can expect a return from. Now, I, at 45 years old, I still do some work for free. I just recently did a brass quintet job that was at a hospice center. So we went and played at a hospice center for the workers who are there at the hospice center. And that is something that I would definitely donate time to as a player. But I think there's a sense that only a professional, you know, there's only payment. And so that's sort of a, a big thing of mine to not discount an opportunity because it either doesn't pay or it doesn't pay very much. Look at where you would be playing and what it might get you and who you would connect with. And don't be afraid to take an opportunity. When Michael Parker asked me to play with him in a duo, he and I had never met. We, we'd not known each other. We were not friends. We didn't go to school together. He's somebody that, as with you, I've only known through social media and the duo has been incredibly successful and we've just gelled beautifully. And that was us taking a chance. That was Do the we- first time I heard your name. The first time yeah. I heard your name was through that. And look at that. So I've been around forever, but it took that duo to cross paths with you. And that's why. And he and I are having a great time. And so it's worth it just because it's fun. But I did not know where that would go. And you have to do that kind of thing anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So awesome. Hey, well, thank you so much for coming on and um, replying to the random tweet and (laughs) hanging out with me uh, so late at night here. Um, (laughs) It's actually we we started at eight in the morning, guys. Um, Hey, thank you so much. Um, And um, I look forward to watching, being able to watch and see all the awesome things that are going on with the the Women's Brass Conference and also all the cool things that you're up to as well. Everybody, you'll be able to get a hold of her. I'm going to throw all the links to her social media down in the description as well as for the Women's Brass and and anything else that's been mentioned here. Um, Until next time, guys, I'm your host, Aaron Campbell. This is the Young Musician's Guide podcast this week with Joanna Ross Hershey. As always, stay happy, but never satisfied.